Welcome to episode number 54 on the My Story Podcast. The My Story Podcast features interviews with leaders, influencers, and entrepreneurs, interesting people who tell their stories and the life lessons they've learned along the way. My goal is to inspire you to live a life of meaning and purpose. Hi, my name is Conrad Weaver. I'm a documentary filmmaker, storyteller, entrepreneur, and the host of this program, the My Story Podcast. And I'm so glad you stopped by to listen to the show. Today's show is sponsored by the documentary film, PTSD 911. This is the documentary feature film that explores the struggle of emergency first responders who battle the demons of post-traumatic stress, but are often very afraid of losing their job if they ask for help. My goal for the film is to educate the public, smash the stigma of asking for help, and inspire change at the agency level to help first responders be better prepared for and deal with the stress of the job. Learn more at PTSD911movie.com. That's PTSD911movie.com. Hey, if you're a fan of Live PD or America's Most Wanted, you've seen and heard today's guest. Tom Morris Jr. spent many years as a senior correspondent and producer for America's Most Wanted before he joined Dan Abrams and the gang at Live PD as an on-camera analyst and co-host on what would become cable television's most popular show. Unfortunately, Live PD was canceled following the murder of George Floyd. And you may know that I'm producing a documentary called PTSD 911, and Tom is on our advisory board for the film. We're so excited to have him on board with us, helping to tell this important story. Back in late 2020, I had the opportunity to interview Tom for the First Responder Friday podcast, a show that we produced for the documentary. And so I've decided to repurpose this interview for the My Story podcast. So stay tuned for this fun, entertaining interview. Hey, if you enjoy the show and get something out of it, please do a couple of things for me. First, please subscribe and then leave a review. This really helps me to know who's listening and that you enjoy what you hear. And you'll help more people discover the My Story podcast. And perhaps they'll discover their purpose through the stories they hear. Thanks for being a part of this community of listeners. I'm so grateful for your faithful support. And now here's my interview with Tom Morris Jr. Well, Tom, thanks so much for joining me today on the show. Thanks for having me. So how have you been? I've been well. Um, I've just been laying low at home for several months like everybody else and uh, working out, trying to stay healthy. And uh, that's about it. Just pretty much enjoying being home. Yeah. So uh, tell me. Tell me a little bit about, I mean, people know who you are. I mean, unless they've been living under a rock for the last couple of years, they don't know who you are. So tell me, how did you get your start? How did you get your start in television? How did you get your start in law enforcement? Well, when I was in high school and I was about to graduate in 1975, I wrote to the FBI because I wanted to be an FBI agent. And I got a letter back signed by J. Edgar Hoover that said, you know, thank you for your interest in the FBI. Uh, FBI agents have to have a college degree. So after you get your degree, contact us again. So at that point, I went on to college and I majored in journalism, mass communications, which was my other passion was writing. And um, when I graduated from college in 1980, I didn't reapply to the FBI. I went into uh, television, actually. My first job was here in Washington 
in the summer of 1980, covering the uh, campaign for the uh, RNC and the DNC, recording speeches of various people that were related to the campaign and the election. And from there, in 1981, I got a job at Independent Network News in the National Press Building, initially as the courier. Um, now, I graduated from college with a year and a half of actual newsroom experience at the uh, ABC affiliate in Norfolk. I graduated from Norfolk State. And so I had a year and a half of television experience when I actually graduated from college. But when I got my first job, it was, hey, we need a courier right now. And my whole thing was, well, get in the door, do that. So the courier at that time, this is 1981, you know, you're shooting on big beta cam tapes. And uh, basically my job was to get in the car and run up to the hill and grab tapes from the camera crews or run over to the White House and grab tapes from the camera crews uh, from Rose Garden, press conferences and hearings and so forth and get them back to the bureau. And uh, while I'd be hanging out in the field with the crews waiting for maybe the press conference to end or the hearing to end and get the tape, I learned how to do sound from the sound mm. And so after about six months of being a courier, uh, I called my old college roommate who was unemployed in D.C. and said, hey, man, you want a job as a courier for a network? <laughs> he said, yeah, sure. And I moved on up to Soundman, and Jocko became the courier. I will tell you this, Jocko Riggs, my college roommate, has had a 30 almost a 40-year career as one of the top cameramen in Washington, D.C. He is, whenever you watch MSNBC Live from the Rotunda, it's his camera every oh, wow. day. Okay. That's him. When you saw the Berlin Wall come down on CNN, yeah. you were looking through his lens. Wow. And I got him. He made it in biology. <laughs> <laughs> so he's had a great career. And uh, my career went on from there. I became a sound man. And then after about a year, a year and a half, I moved up to cameraman and and we started doing field producing for different shows in addition to INN. I uh, worked on shows like That's Incredible, did press junkets for movies like Superman and Young Doctors in Love and uh, Against All Odds with Jeff Bridges and different things like that. And after about four or five years of all of that and still doing news in Washington, I got kind of bored. And uh, by 87, I was looking around for something else to do. And one day I was looking in the Washington Post newspaper uh, one ads and I saw a little ad that said embassy task group overseas security. And the only word I cared about was overseas because I always wanted to go abroad. <laughs> didn't care and, where, where it was, right? <laughs> yeah, I didn't care where it was. I just wanted to go overseas and I'd always wanted to travel abroad and live out my Hemingway-esque fantasies of romance <laughs> and adventure abroad, right? So they were only hiring people that were coming out of the military or police um, for this program. It was under the Omnibus Anti-Terrorism Act of 86, where Congress had mandated that all of the embassies and consulates around the world be upgraded and make sure that they were not compromised like the one in Moscow had been that was built by Russian contractors who bugged the entire US embassy in Moscow back in the 70s or whenever they built it from top to bottom. So they were gonna train a force of people former military and police to deploy around the world to protect these embassies and consulates as they were physically upgraded or built from scratch from the ground up. And so after going through four different interviews and explaining why I didn't have any of that experience, <laughs> four different people. I'm um, a camera guy for the TV crew. <laughs> right. And I said, but my whole argument was, look, you're going to teach all of us how to do this job, right? 
So yeah, no matter what background you is, right? Yeah. So what <laughs> difference does it make what I haven't done before? This is a specific thing you're going to train us to do. And anti-terrorism, preventing espionage and physical espionage within physical structures being built that are top secret, you know, that's a specific thing. So um, when my clearance came through, I went through all my training. I actually, one very cool thing, um, the training lasted about six months. We went through the State Department Anti-Terrorism Institute. We did some other training out in Dulles. And once my training was done, I actually created a newsletter for the Cleared American Guard program that went out to all the other hmm. officers that were stationed already around the world. So I actually used my journalism experience for a few months while I was still in Roswell. It came in handy, right? (laughs) Yeah, getting ready to deploy overseas. And during that time, I actually uh, got to drive chauffeur Admiral Elmo Zumwalt back and forth to the uh, to the CIA on occasion Hmm. because the contract was headed up by him. Okay, that I was working under. Mm -hmm. So I actually got to ride around and actually chat with Elmo Zumwalt, who, as we all know, was the admiral in charge of the Navy during uh, Vietnam. Wow. And uh, so that was I a bet cool you experience. had some stories there, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, when my clearance came through in the spring and March of 88, I was deployed to Mogadishu, Somalia, which was not on my list of places <laughs> that I had expected to go. Um, it, it there wasn't, wasn't these nice, beautiful... It just, uh, right. I, I was planning on going to Europe, South America, somewhere. But anyway... I end up being sent there because one member of the team, there was an eight-man team in Mogadishu, right? And they were building a huge embassy compound from the ground up there. It was going to be like the green zone in Iraq now. Mm, yeah. And uh, one of the officers got caught smoking weed mm-hmm. <laughs> on the roof <laughs> of the embassy. Oh, no. <laughs> and that's why I got sent to, oh, wow. <laughs> to replace him. Yeah, now, was this before the you know the story about the movie you know, Black Hawk Down? Was this before or yeah, after that? Yeah, this is this is the spring of '88. I get okay. there in March. The civil war breaks out in May in the oh. northern part of Somalia. By the end of my one-year contract in December, the civil war is moving closer to the, the capital of Mogadishu, where we are, and things are starting to really go wrong. I mean, the soldiers are carjacking diplomatic vehicles at gunpoint at checkpoints to use them to get uh, you know, Land Rovers and Range Rovers to get mm-hmm. soldiers up to the front. They were just taking people's vehicles at gunpoint. It didn't matter if you had diplomatic plates. Things were just getting really out of control. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I didn't renew my contract. I said, you know what, I'm going to get out of here. I'm, <laughs> I'm going home at the end of this. And I did. Black Hawk Down happened, I think, about two to three years later, okay. like 92. But the embassy that we built, that compound that we built, was overrun like the Alamo, wow. um, literally a year after it was completed. As wow. the, as troops were massing for Desert Storm, mm-hmm. the embassy compound in Mogadishu that we had built came under siege mm. from Somali rebels, and they were literally scaling the walls with ladders, and they had wow. handed out guns to everybody. The CBs were fighting gun battles on the golf course there. Mm. Um, it was crazy. Um, so I, I made mm. this right decision getting out <laughs> yeah. when I did because uh, things really went south in, within two years of me leaving. Yeah. And uh, they had to send in the Marines to evacuate everybody from that embassy and save mm-hmm. them. So when I came back, I said, well, you know, I ventured off out of television into this line of work, top secret security. So I went to work for the Department of Energy at uh, headquarters in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. and as an armed security officer there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I did that for a couple of years. And from there, I went 
to work for a stock photo agency, the same agency that I had actually gotten my first job at out of college in the mm-hmm. summer of 1980. It was Unifoto Pictor American Media. And I went back to work for them for a little bit. And uh, one of the photographers, a stock photographer that I represented, he was a professional golf photographer. And one day my wife and I were over at his house visiting him in Bethesda. And my wife happened to remark about the neighbor's yard across the street, which had a lot of holes dug in it. And he said, oh, yeah, that guy, he's he's executive producer of America's Most Wanted. I said, really, Chris? Hmm. I said, yeah. I said, you know him? He said, yeah, I'm actually going to have breakfast with him tomorrow, as a matter of fact. And I said, well, you know, I happen to have my resume in the car. And I gave it to Chris and he gave it to this man, Lance Heflin, who was the executive producer of America's Most Wanted. And three weeks later, I got a call from the co-executive producer to come in for an interview. And he hired me and gave me a double homicide case to investigate and put together a case file on as a precursor to doing a reenactment on this murder in Brooklyn. And this the fugitive's name was Irving Razor Jones. He was known as Razor on the streets. Mm-hmm. He killed his wife and his brother-in-law. And I'd never actually done this type of television producing before, uh, but I didn't tell them that. I just, <laughs> I just said, he gave me the case and I said, okay, I'll, I'll figure this out. And uh, they gave me a couple of case files to look at as examples. And so I went to New York, did the interviews with the detectives in the 75th precinct in East New York, Brooklyn there, and uh, put together the whole thing. We did the reenactment. We put my first case on America's Most Wanted on a Saturday night, and we caught Irving Razor Jones within a few days. And from there, uh, I was pretty much hooked on this electronic TV manhunting thing, man. And And you really made a career out of that. For 19 years at America's Most Wanted. Wow. Uh, Lance Heflin uh, passed away Sunday a week ago. Mm. Um, 68 years old. He was the guy who ran and shepherded the ship of America's Most Wanted for 21 season of 21 of its 25 seasons. And uh, he gave me my first chance of being on the air after I've been a producer on the show for three years. And one day he just said to me, um, he said, you know, I think you'd be good in front of the camera. And I said, okay. Uh, and it's funny because when I was majoring in mass comm at Norfolk state, we had broadcast studio and everything. And I would do on air stuff as a college student and, I was voted most likely to succeed on air in my class. And by the time I actually stepped in front of a camera because Lance said, I think you'd be good on the air and gave me a case to investigate and report on America's Most Wanted in February, 1997. um, That's when it happened. I was 40 years old at that point. Mm. Uh, I had never been on TV before. And I, I did a homicide case that was actually right here in the, DMV in Greenbelt, Maryland. And my first stand up, I was a little stiff and, you know, I was, you know, but uh, the only advice I got about being on the air was from an editor we had named Gary Myers and Gary's passed on as well. But um, Gary just said, look right through the lens mm. and be yourself. Mm. So that's it. That's it. So that's what I did. And uh, I continued to wow. do stories on the air and uh what made that show so, so, I mean, such a success? I mean, it was on the air for what, 25 years? 25 years. What, what, what made that show that successful? One, it was a place of last resort where victims of crime could go to try to get justice, to get mm-hmm. their day in court, to get that person apprehended that kidnapped their child or murdered their father 
or robbed them of their life savings in a swindle. It was that place of last resort. And for me as a journalist, I'm a huge fan of Edward R. Murrow. Mm -hmm. And I've always believed that journalism and television should be a a medium to improve society, not just entertain. There's Mm -hmm. obviously a place for entertainment and television, but also to actually make a tangible difference in making the society better with the information you put out there. And in this case, we were putting out there, this person's wanted for this. And we're gonna show you in a reenactment and with interviews and with hear from the victims themselves, the family members and the detectives and the cops and the agents on the cases. And we're gonna tell you this story about this case because this person's still free. And we need your help, America, to catch this person and bring them to justice. And people wanted to help. People would watch those stories and they were horrified by some of the things that we had to show them that it happened, mm-hmm. but they wanted to help. And the next day, as they went out to work or to the grocery store or to a football game, they were looking for that face they'd seen on America's Most Wanted. And the success of the show is pretty much summed up numerically. America's Most Wanted did somewhere around 1,200 episodes and caught something like 1,265 fugitives. Wow. And recovered more than 50 missing children. Yeah, that's that's astounding that one show that someone had a vision to produce the show to, to catch bad guys and really to be an advocate for the victims. That, mm-hmm. That's probably worth what, what hooked the audience, right? Is just those people that were affected yeah. by... Yeah by and, this act. And that's what we were all very passionate about. America's Most Wanted. We were a family, unlike a lot of television, the staff and the and the people aren't, you know, like this. They, they're not, they don't just love and nurture each other. With America's Most Wanted, we were all dealing with seriously tragic content. And we were having to sit down and interview. I mean, you can't imagine what it's like to sit down and interview a 12 year old girl who watched her mother and grandmother have their throat slit on Christmas Eve. Mm. And you've, and her father's a fugitive for it now. And I've got to sit down three weeks after this has happened to her and her little siblings who all witnessed it. And I've got to actually interview this girl to try to get some insight that will help us find her father and paint the picture of who her mother and grandmother were. So how did you do that? I did it through empathy. At that point, when that case came around, that was uh, Albert James Turner. That was somewhere around 2010 or nine. Uh, at that point, I'd been doing it for over 15 years. And you just learn, you learn how to talk to people, how to listen, how to pause when they break down, how to break down sometimes yourself because you, you're just as touched as they are. I mean, I get emotional thinking about it now some of the cases i worked on what out of all the cases that you worked on which one stands out the most or which one haunts you the most there was one that i didn't personally work on but we did it on the show and it was a man named yasser saeed in texas and he was a uh, he was from the middle east or, or south asia P- pakistan or somewhere like that And he and his wife and two daughters lived in Houston, I believe it was. And his daughters were teenagers and they were enjoying going to school and being American teenage girls. 
And he hated that. Mm. So much so that he shot and killed both of his daughters. Mm. I think one was 15 and one was 12, something like that. And ironically, he was just apprehended this year. Oh, wow. Yeah. He was and, caught this summer. He was still in Texas. That? It had to have been, um, you can look it up, but uh, it was Yasser, Y-A-S-S-E-R, last name S-A-I-D. And I believe it must have been around 2007 or eight. He was definitely on the run for more than a decade. And the thought was that he had gone back to Pakistan or wherever he'd come from. We were shocked. To, I was shocked to just see a news story pop up on the news, on, on the Internet, that this man who'd been on the run for murdering his brother had been hiding hiding him out the whole time. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, so I mean, I, I used to think about those two girls. We did a mm. full reenactment of that case. Mm. And it was one of the most heartbreaking cases. It was mm. hard for us. It was hard for the actors. It was hard for everybody that worked on that case and everybody that saw it. Hmm. And so that that's one. There, there, there are more than I could ever begin what, to. What's one that really that you that was like, yes, we, we did this. We got it. We, we solved this. We, we, you know, had a, a real success story that I mean, you have many. But what's one that really stands out? Uh, there was a guy who was a fugitive for a murder in um, Miami Gardens, Florida. And his name was Jelmo Kirkland. And uh, this young man had gone to this convenience store and this guy looked at him, thought he looked at him wrong and just shot him dead mm. and took off. And so I got the case. Jelmo Kirkland was a fugitive and um, we aired it a couple of times, I think, and got some leads, but still didn't catch him. And then a few months later, I went on Montel Williams and showed the clip from that case on Montel mm -hmm. and somebody from his audience recognized this guy knew exactly where he was hiding. We sent the marshals, we got the tip, we sent the marshals there, they apprehended him. And I was able to call his mother and I had to, I actually decided to have the camera set up in my office at my cubicle when I called his mother to tell her that we had caught Jomo Kirkland. And, he had murdered her only son. He was a high school student who worked at McDonald's. He was a good kid. And all he did was go to a convenience store, look at somebody and gets murdered for it. So mm. I'll never forget, we had we sent a camera crew to her house in Miami Gardens. And I told her we were just sending a crew to do a follow-up for an update on the case. Mm -hmm. She had no idea I was going to tell her that we had caught. Mm -hmm. So when I said, you know, we caught Jomo Kirkland. She just erupted on the other end of the phone. It was just the best wow. feeling in the world. It was, wow. it was what we, what we worked hard for, what we used our storytelling talents for was to get people that moment of closure mm -hmm. and then let the courts take it from there. Sure. Sure. So following your, your run on, on America's most wanted, you went back into police work. Uh, I actually went into actual police work for the first time. I'd done okay. more national security right, right, work right. before yep. State Department, Department of Energy. Um, that was more paramilitary type mm -hmm. stuff. I mean, this, what motivated you to go from this amazing run on America's Most Wanted on television on, you know, on camera to putting on a gun and a badge and going out into one of the worst areas of D.C.? Well, look at it this way. I started on AMW at the age of 36. 
When it ended, I was 54. And I was suddenly supposed to become a freelancer. <laughs> okay. Right? Yeah. Wife, three, <laughs> wife and four kids, been sole breadwinner primarily, and now I'm supposed to be a freelancer at 54. Mm-hmm. And what other show is like America's Most Wanted for me to go to? Right. You know what I mean? To do yeah. that kind of work on every week, week in, week out. There wasn't mm-hmm. much. There were these other crime shows on ID, you know, Wives with Knives and, you know, Killer, hashtag Killer Posts and different shows. Mm-hmm. I would go on some of those shows as a expert, crime expert, and help tell those stories as a freelancer. But the phone didn't ring that much. I was mm-hmm. going to be able to eat and keep mm-hmm. a roof over our head. So I got to thinking, well, what, what have I been doing for the last 19 years? I've been working with law enforcement officers. I know as much about law enforcement from just being around it as a lot. You know, I know a lot. All I need to do is just become a cop. So at first I was going to apply to the Metropolitan Police Department in D.C. And I just thought to myself, that may be at my age going a little. I could still have qualified, but I said that may be going a little, little far. Uh, Next path was to become a special police officer which in Washington, D.C., and SPO is trained and then sworn and commissioned by MPD, but you're assigned to a specific place in the city. It might be a housing project. It might be the Holocaust Museum, for example. Like, you may recall some years ago, a guy came into the Holocaust Museum with a shotgun. Yep. Well, the people that shot and killed him, those were SPOs. Okay. Those were special gotcha. police officers. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are about 17,000 special police mm-hmm. officers in Washington, D.C., uh, there's only 3,000 MPD. Mm-hmm. So that gives you well, an idea. a lot idea. of places to keep secure and keep you yes, know, protect, ex- right? exactly. Government mm-hmm. buildings, you name it. So I became a special police officer in the spring of 2013 and was assigned to a place known in the city as Sersum Quarter, which is a, a multi-block complex of several different uh, housing, housing areas. Mm-hmm. And pretty notorious place, um, very notorious, to be honest with you. Um, just a few weeks before I started, there had been a drive-by shooting there where 12 people were shot. Mm. Wow. So that gives you, that gives you an idea. Yeah. What, what did your family, what did your wife and family think of you, you know, doing that? Uh, I mean, honestly, she just, she, she knew I would be prepared, mm-hmm. that I would be wise in the street, that mm-hmm. I wouldn't be stupid and get myself killed unnecessarily. Uh, and other than that, they just prayed for me to come home every day. And I worked the night shift. So I'm working the spring and summer of 2013 down there. I mean, comrade, it was crazy. Now, okay, so my first night on foot patrol, I'm walking around learning roads from this young guy from Detroit named Abner, Officer Abner. Abner had just gotten out of the army. He had been in, in uh, Iraq and he was part of a unit that hunted down and killed terrorists. This dude was hardcore, right? So we're walking around the Tyler House complex, parking lot, and he's showing me where things are. And he's like, over here is where where the dice games are. We break up dice games over there. Over there is where the drug deals stand on the tree, and blah, blah, Those are the drug deals over there. So we're walking around at night. All of a sudden I hear, boom, big explosion, right? And I'm like, what the hell was that? He goes, oh, there's nothing, man. It's a half stick. Give me a half stick. He's a half stick of dynamite. They, they throw those around here. Oh I'm like, goodness. what? We are eight blocks from the Capitol. I can see the Capitol. <laughs> and an explosion just went off. 
And ATF and didn't big show deal. up. Okay? <laughs> Nobody came. All right? He's like, oh, that's just a half stick. They throw those around here. I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, We've stepped into a whole other world here. You know? This is a whole other level. So things, I, I'll tell you, my, my, my experience with that particular thing, one night I'm standing on foot patrol at the corner of New York Avenue and, Florida, and North Capitol Street. And there's a liquor store directly across the street. And you know how in the city you have these uh, trash city trash cans that are a big wrought iron around them yep. and they're bolted to mm-hmm. the concrete? Mm-hmm. So I'm standing there on the corner. I just shoot away some uh, weed smokers from, from the wall on the corner there. And this is, I don't know, sometime after 11 at night. And there's a car sitting facing this way on North Capitol at the light by the liquor store waiting for the light to turn green. And I see this guy come running down New York Avenue with a fuse, sparks flying from a fuse in his hand. And you remember in in, uh, the movie, The Dirty Dozen, when Jim Brown grabbed the dynamite and had to run and drop it down the tubes Mm -hmm. into the German building? Yep. Yep. It was like that. (laughs) I just see this dude running down the street with a fuse in his hand lit. <laughs> and he throws it in the trash can, which is right beside this guy's car who's sitting there waiting for the light to turn. And it explodes. And this was more than a half a stick, okay? Yeah. <laughs> it blew the trash can up into the air oh my and disabled the man's vehicle <laughs> to where it had to be towed away. Wow. So I'm expecting ATF is coming, Homeland Security is coming. Mm-hmm. We are eight blocks from the Capitol. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yep. MPD showed up, two cars. So a couple of weeks later, we had another incident on the same corner where a guy got knocked unconscious, and I was responding to that, and some of the same MPD officers that had responded to that blown-up car disabled situation were there. And so I asked them, I said, uh, I said, hey, you know, when that car got blown up a couple weeks ago, how come ATF, Homeland Security, uh, you know, how come nobody showed up? I mean, it was an explosion. It disabled the vehicle. We're eight blocks from the Capitol. He said, well, they throw those in the alleys up on Capitol Hill, too. And when they do it up there, everybody shows up. People with tinfoil hats show up. People in spacesuits show up. But over here in Southern Quarter, it's just us. <laughs> Welcome to policing in D.C., right? I tell you, man. So Wow. So you've done those kind of works you've, you, you've done. And then you, uh, I guess you were. Went to the state and, department. And went to the you, state department. Oh, you went to the state department, right? Yeah. Okay. At the end of that year, I went, I got hired as a uniform diplomatic security officer for the state department. Now, uniform secret service division is actual, their actual government employees, state department, uniform division are actually contractors. Okay. It's a contract. So I got hired there, went through the training, got my top secret clearance. And in the winter of 2013, going into 2014, I was on the night shift at the State Department, literally standing outside in the cold at a guard booth or a checkpoint or a foot patrol all night long. I went through three brutal winters on the night shift. Mm. Outside Maine State in Barky Bob. And it tested everything I had. When you're outside all night and it's five degrees and you got to wear what you were issued, which is supposedly winter gear, but it's polyester, but 
Mm-hmm. You end up having to layer everything you can think of underneath it and get every pair of thick socks Eddie Bauer can can provide to try to get through it. It was it was hard, man. There's but, no cold um, like a city cold. Cold, man. Yeah. Cold. And you know, if the weather was really bad, like if it snowed, when you're on a night shift, all you're praying for is that the day shift, the second shift, are gonna show up. <laughs> and when they don't, then you get held. Mm. So your worst nightmare was getting held. <laughs> Up till quarter to 12 the next day. Oh, my goodness. So there were some nights I went to work and reported at 2300 and didn't get off till almost noon the next day. Wow. And uh, but I never called off sick. I never called off because I didn't want to go. I just felt that it would be wrong to put other people in that position. There were a lot of people that called off all the time. And uh, I didn't. Those those kind of days and nights make you long for the uh, studio lights, the hot studio lights. At that point, I had resigned myself to never being on television again. Mm. Um, I I said one night I was talking to one of the standing posts at one of the offices, Mike Slesser, and Slesser was like, you know, people came to know who I was. That I was mm-hmm. that guy that was on America's Most Wanted for almost twenty years. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't any secret. Pretty quick, who mm-hmm. I was, and and he said, man, you'll be on television again. I'm telling mm-hmm. you, you will. And I said, man, you know, whatever God has in store for me is what it is. You know, if he wants me to be on TV again, I will. If he doesn't, I won't. And I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. And uh, after three years at State, a Navy, Department of Navy contractor hired about 15 of us DS officers away from State because we had top secret clearances. Mm-hmm. And so they trained us to become declassification analysts. So in spring of 2016, I was working in a secure compartmentalized skiff for the Department of Navy um, and doing declassification work. And I must tell you, it was a it was interesting because you're looking at all sorts of things that that may span decades. Hmm. These were like documents that were top secret and you were declassifying them as top secret. We were studying them to make recommendations as to whether or not they should remain classified or, or some other status. And uh, the test that you had to take the final exam you had to take to become a D class analyst, you could not get one question wrong. Hmm. I've never had a test where if you got one question wrong, you were off the contract. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's some pressure for you. Yeah, no kidding. You know, I'm like, at that point, I'm like 60 years old, too. This mind is a little, it ain't what it was when I was 18. You know what I mean? I'm like, I'm like whoa, I got to What did you have to do to study for that? I mean, what did you, did you study for that? Oh, yeah. You go, you went through an intense week of uh, of training for, to pet, for that specific test. And I'll tell you why that is. A lot of things that pop up in D-class, uh, may relate to weapon systems, hmm. for example. And most people don't realize that all of the nuclear weapons that the military owns has are actually owned by the Department of Energy. Hmm. Yeah. So you have to be certified as what they call herd certified, historical records reviewer data certified mm-hmm. to be able to distinguish anything that you're analyzing that may relate to those sorts of sensitive classified matters. Mm -hmm. So that's why you can't get anything wrong on the test Mm. because the consequences are severe, potentially severe. Right. So I'm doing that and I'm chilling and you know, I'm, uh, I'm good. I'm just working six to two and, and that's it. And K 
Kara Kurtz, who had worked with me at America's Most Wanted for many years, she came to AMW somewhere around 97, right out of college as an intern. And uh, she calls me up in like April of 2016. And actually, just a few weeks after I started at the Department of Navy. And um, hey, we're, we're working on a show with a production company about police and, you know, and I heard that you've been doing some police work and, you know, uh, would you be interested in being attached to the pitch? And I'm like, yeah, sure, absolutely. So I gave him my reel and everything, bio and all that. I ain't here anymore. And then in November, she calls me up and says, hey, remember that show we were talking about? Well, it's on the air and it's called Live PD and we've been on for about eight weeks or whatever. Can you come to New York and audition to be a crime analyst on the show? And I said, sure. So I took a Monday off, the next Monday off, and went to New York and um, went in the studio. And one of the executive producers, David Doss, actually played the part of Dan Abrams with me. So I'm on set. And keep in mind, I haven't been on TV now. Well, I'm, you know, you know, I, I, I've been on, I've been on, CNN and MSNBC, mm-hmm. Nancy Grace over the years, Monte Williams talking about crime cases on AMW, right. but doing a live show for two or three hours was something I had never done before. Sure. But I uh, auditioned with David Doss uh, playing Dan Abrams, and they showed us some clips from LIPD, and then I gave my insights and banter with Dan Abrams, mm-hmm. a.k.a. David Doss. <laughs> and um, when I got done, he took me into master control, and all the people in there started clapping. And they were like, where have you been? You know, I said, well, I've been, you know, working for the government, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, that's where I've been, you know. And uh, so I started on the show on episode nine. Hmm. And on my first episode, matter of fact, I didn't even know it was a three hour, three hour long show <laughs> when I did the first episode. So I thought it was two hours. And I, uh, I was looking at my watch and said to the studio crew when it was about quarter to 11 p.m., I said, uh, no, we're almost done doing one of the commercial breaks. They said, no, we got another hour to go. I'm like, what? <laughs> they said, yeah, this is a three-hour-long show. I'm like, this is a football game. What are you talking about? <laughs> this is a football game, you know? And uh, so, you know, I went to that first show, and on that show, I, I made a blunder. And keep in mind, I don't know Dan Abrams from Adam. I did do a remote hit on his MSNBC show some years ago, talking about an AMW case, but I'd never met him in person until that night. And it's just he and I. I had replaced two cops that had been the crime analyst for the first eight episodes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I replaced them. So it's now just Dan and myself. And uh, at one point, somebody got pulled over on the show with a bunch of weed. And I said, you know, Dan, it reminds me of that song by Flo Rida, the rapper, Riding Dirty. You know, he was riding dirty. And uh, so a little while later, Twitter starts to light up and people are going, that song's not by Flo Rider. That's by Chameleon Air. <laughs> and so Dan looks at me and says, hey, Tom, people are saying you got your rappers wrong. I'm like, OK, well, I'll take that hip hop L, Dan. Next break you get. During the, during the action, bring it up, tell them that they've corrected me and I'm going to take that L and give them the credit. <laughs> and so I did. And uh, at some point, I, I 
uttered the word live PD nation, which became a phenomenon. It became a thing. It became a thing. Yeah. And to this day, it's the live PD nation is a thing. <laughs> yeah. And we went from there, man. And I think about, I came on the show episode nine, a couple weeks later, the viewership increased to almost a million people. Mm-hmm. And we never looked back after that. By the summer of 2017, Sticks had joined us. And it was the three amigos. We just all had this, we have this great natural chemistry between us. Yeah, um, it was it was really fun to watch you guys to really enjoy the, the camaraderie you seem to have, you know. On yeah. I know things are different sometimes in real life, but you seem to have this, this camaraderie. And it was, you know, focused on these, you know, it was amazing because it was live, technically. It, Maybe it wasn't yeah. live, but yeah. it was, it was, it was live, time. With a, live with a, a delay, a little yeah. delay. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it was just amazing to watch that. And I remember the first time I was introduced to live PD, I was actually doing a ride along mm-hmm. with a sheriff's sergeant here in Frederick County, Maryland. And we pulled this car over, had a bunch of kids in it and, and he suspected they were carrying weed, which they were, and he had had them all lined up. And I was filming some stuff for another documentary I was working on. I jumped out my camera and they were like, what's this? He was like, oh, you guys ever hear that show Live PD? They're like, no, we're on Live PD. Are you kidding me? Then he said, no, not really. (laughs) But I was like, later, I was like, what's Live PD? He's like, you don't know about Live PD? Come on, man. You got to get with it. And I went home that night and looked it up and I've been a fan ever since. <laughs> it, it, it's a tremendous phenomenon. And, you know, I just, you know, Kara Kurtz changed my life with that phone call for me mm. to come on this with that show. And it's, it's interesting. You know, someone when they're an intern mm. and almost 20 years later, they're an executive producer and call you up mm. and give you the That's opportunity good, of a lifetime. Wow. And, you end up on the number one show in all of cable television for the next four years. Yeah. And you end up with your own spinoff. I was going to say you ended up doing your own show from that, right? Yeah. And being able to, and that was partly why coming from the AMW background that she and I come from, uh, we wanted to be able to use some of those minutes in a three hour show to profile wanted people on live PD and missing children. uh, It was in the second year that I approached the national center for missing and exploited children, which is run by John Walsh, my former boss, and a lot of my former AMW colleagues are at the National Centers ever since the show ended. Mm-hmm. And so I extended from A&E and Live PD to them to start uh, profiling missing kids on the show. And so through that work we've done on Live PD, we've, with the help of the Live PD Nation viewers, apprehended more than 30 fugitives, mm-hmm. uh, helped recover seven or eight or more children, um, so it's just been a blessing to be able to continue that kind of what I call God's work on television. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems to be that this has kind of really become a passion of yours to solve crimes, to solve, you know, you know, un, un, unsolved crimes and then to, to deliver, you know, to, to bring families back together in a way yes. or to find these kids that have been missing. Because as we know, the, you know, you know tra- human trafficking is a huge phenomenon around mm-hmm. the world. And what a lot of people don't know that it's right here. It's, yeah. it's not just in the big cities. It's in the little towns. It's in the mm-hmm. little cities. Mm-hmm. And you've, you've helped, you know, helped shape some lives and change some lives because of the shows that you've been on. Yeah. With the help of the viewing public, man. I mean, that's the, it's a relationship that works when you can put a million eyeballs out looking mm-hmm. for somebody. The, no police department can do that. They can put things on the internet, but 
to have, you know, a million, million and a half people watch something, be invested in what they see, and you actually get them to understand this is the deal here, and this is why we need you to be on the lookout. Mm-hmm. And then they come through. It's just, it's, it's a perfect partnership between the media and the public. Were you ever afraid that perhaps what you were doing, you, were you ever threatened? Or in, in any way, you know, that, hey, maybe this guy that you're looking for or talk about is going to come after you. Oh, I've been threatened uh, <laughs> during my AMW years. Oh, man. I mean, John Walsh had armed bodyguards all those years. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, I've been threatened by the head of the Mongols. Hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I've been threatened. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Out of all the things that you've done both in your police work and your other government work that you did and, and, the, and the television shows, what's, and we're looking back at that amazing history, what's been the favorite thing or favorite event or favorite moment? I think when I got to host Wanted the, the first season and they created this show for me based on the Wanted segments I was doing on Live PD. And I think that uh, that was just, at that point, I felt like the dreams that I had dreamed about being on television when I was in college 40 years ago, this long journey through Somalia and the State Department, Department of Energy, Department of Navy, and going through being unemployed after AMW and damn near losing my house. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) You know, it's like, I look back on it and I was just like, you know, this journey has been amazing. God has ordered my steps to here I am doing a show that was meant to be, I guess, for me to do mm. based on who I am and what I've done. Mm-hmm. And the opportunities presented themselves because somebody that I'd known for many years gave me a shot. Mm-hmm. Wow. You've seen policing around the country over the years. How has policing changed? Well, in some respects, some cities and jurisdictions have become more uh, proactive in terms of community policing in a positive way um, and trying to really build relationships. Other departments still are struggling with that. Obviously, this has been a tumultuous year for law enforcement, for for the relationship with the public, with minorities, you name it. It's been a traumatic year. And I think that people have got to listen to each other. Mm-hmm. You know, the police have to listen to the people. The people have to understand the police. And it's just not going to happen by by osmosis. It this is a this is a deep, deep rooted problem that we have in this country dealing with law enforcement, racism, all of these things. And people are going to have to begin to listen to each other and understand each other in order to try to make this better. Hmm. So looking back at, at, at your life and, and I always like to ask guests this question, when the movie about your life is made, Hmm. what will the log line be? He's dead now, but he lived (laughs) a great life. (laughs) (laughs) He did some good along the way. Well, I think, I think Tom, you've done a lot of good along the way and you've, uh, you've changed the lives of many people because of the things that you've done and, and the, and the live PD nation, I guess that has, uh, evolved from this and what, what's next for you? Just waiting for the next season of wanted to start back up and 
get back to hunting fugitives and finding missing children and work with my colleagues again. Yeah, those are uh, those are some great things that you've done and great things that you will do, I'm sure, in the future. And by the way, I have to say that you don't look your age. <laughs> Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. You must be doing something right there. <laughs> I, I'll let you know my secret. OK, OK, please do. When I was in my early 20s in D.C., I dated a woman who was older than me who owned a beauty salon. And she would give me mud mask facials and manicures and pedicures. And she taught me how to take care of my skin. Hmm. And I've given myself a facial every Sunday night since the 1980s. Wow. Yeah, seriously. Sunday night, I sit back. I got a massage chair in my man cave. I got a foot um, pe uh, pedicure, mm -hmm. heated thing. Sit back. I'm watching Fargo. I'm doing my nails. I got... I got my mud mask on. This is what I do, Conrad. <laughs> and then I work out and I make sure I don't get fat. Well, that uh, gives me something to shoot for there. There you go. <laughs> you only get one face, man. That's true. I know. I, I got to put up with this one. So. Ah, you're looking good. Yeah. You'll well, you know what? It's been a real privilege of having you on the show today. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the work that you've done. And for I know the work that you're going to do in the future as well. I all really right. appreciate it. And also just for all the people listening, thank, you know, Tom has joined our, us as an advisor for our film PTSD 911 and looking forward to engaging with Tom in the future as we develop this film project and, and move forward. And Tom, I wish you all the success in the world. So mm -hmm. thanks for joining us. Oh, and one other thing, you, you can also listen to my PD stories podcast series. Yes, please. Which tell wherever us you get your podcast, uh, check it out. You'll get to see here, see and hear some great interviews with different types of law enforcement officers and their experiences and insights and and uh, some really compelling interviews and, and a variety of different types of approaches to the problems and issues that are going on in law enforcement today. Well, that wraps it up with Tom Morris Jr. Tom, thank you for joining me today for the show. And I really appreciate you participating with us, not only on the podcast, but also on the documentary film. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the show today. And if you enjoy what you hear, please leave a review and a rating. This lets me know what you like and how I can improve the show. And I know sometimes the show does need improving. We can all improve. We can all get better. And please share this episode with a friend or a colleague. The music on today's show is from my friend, Drew Davidson. You can get all of his music on iTunes or Spotify or at drewdavidson.com. Finally, Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again next time on the My Story Podcast. Podcast.